Considered as the Khmer Rouge's premier agent of torture, Comrade Duc was responsible for the deaths of thousands using experimental approaches. So when Pastor Christopher Lapel, the only survivor of his family who escaped the genocide that took place in the killing fields of Cambodia, when he discovered that Comrade Duc had finally been brought to justice some 20 years later, he felt much relief. Lapel had personally felt the emotional torment of Comrade Duc's evil enterprise when he lost a sibling to the barbaric torturer. Hey, it's Andy. And this is the 25th episode of BNP, Biblical Narrative Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you in the action. When Lapel was told of Comrade Duke's trial and conviction, he rejoiced that justice had occurred. But when he discovered that Comrade Duke came to Christ under another name, a name he recognized as one of his own disciples, he was shell-shocked. What does he do with the flood of memories that caused him so much pain by this brutal human being? Furthermore, what does he do with a disciple that he trained and mentored that has since been changed by the power of God? What would you do? Yeah, it's not easy to consider forgiveness as a viable option here. And to actually extend forgiveness because you've been confronted by the power of God through a changed life. Well, gosh, maybe it's time to get your head examined. Seriously, what happens when you're confronted with the presence and truth of God through the changed life of another? And yet, you choose to ignore it. Or worse, you become hostile to it. That's the issue Barnabas' parents wrestle when they meet Paul for the first time. Let's get into Acts chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, and see what unfolds. Patting him on the shoulder, Barnabas looks at the younger John Mark and says, Well, this is us. Let's climb aboard. All smiles, John Mark responds, Yeah, let's do this. Climbing aboard, Barnabas yells out to Saul, who stands some 100 feet away and is talking to a stranger. Hey, they aren't staying here for long. You coming? Saul looks up to see the ship's crew members finalize their checklist of items. He then excuses himself from the stranger and waves to Barnabas. I'll be right there. Finding a place to camp for the journey, Barnabas looks at Saul, who approaches them, and asks, Will this work? Saul looks around to evaluate his options and says, Yeah, this is as good as any. At least there's an overhang which should provide us some shade. Settling themselves for the long ride ahead, Saul and Barnabas take a deep breath as if to say, Here we go. It's been a while, Saul shares. Yeah, Barnabas responds. Me too. When was the last time you sailed? Looking around to familiarize himself with his settings, a restless Saul replies, On a boat? Hmm. The last time I sailed was when I had to get away from some guys in Jerusalem who wanted to kill me. Oh yeah, that seems to be a theme with you, doesn't it? Barnabas responds with a laugh. Turning to face John Mark, Barnabas goes on. Do you remember that, John Mark? Saul here, after nearly getting himself killed, got chased out of Damascus. He decided it would be a good idea to do a repeat in Jerusalem. Turning back to Saul, Barnabas chides. So, what other cities are you going to get us chased out of? Smiling, Saul shrugs. I shall do what I must. Let's put that behind us and see what lay ahead. Land, a voice announces from the bow of the ship. 
Having slept for much of the evening, the three simultaneously opened their eyes upon hearing the voice. Resting his head up against Barnabas' shoulders, John Mark sits up and stretches his neck. Barnabas turns to see Saul also waking up. Good, you're up too. Yeah, though comfort isn't exactly what they had in mind here, Saul responds as he stretches his arms. You know, one of these days, somebody's going to get the brilliant idea to put beds and cabins in these things. And a pool, John Mark adds. Oh, and an endless table of food, like all you can possibly eat. Barnabas and Saul exchange crazy look glances. A guy can always dream, John Mark says. Saul, I have a question for you, Barnabas says. Saul looks at Barnabas. Barnabas continues. While I know there are a number of strong synagogues here, most of the folks we'll be meeting speak Greek. Okay, Saul responds. Barnabas says, since most will likely respond to you better with your Latin name, are you okay with me calling you Paul? That's fine, Saul says. I've been used to either for all my life. Growing up, I didn't hear my Jewish name much outside of the home. It wasn't until I lived in Jerusalem that I took to Saul myself. Saul teases, for the longest time my mom called me Saul, but that was only when I was in trouble. (laughs) Barnabas laughs. Heard it a lot then, huh? Paul stands to stretch and says, oh, if you only knew, I'm just glad I've stayed alive for this long. God is faithful, Barnabas replies. Yes, he is, Paul agrees. Turning to face John Mark, Barnabas asks, John Mark, are you okay with just going by your Roman name, Mark? I guess, John Mark says. I'll just have to remember that you're talking to me. Heading to one side of the ship to take in the view of the approaching land, John Mark points and says, Is Salamis ahead of us? Barnabas responds while pointing to the distant port. Yes, right over there is where we're headed, though it will take us a little time before we get to shore. Paul interjects, You grew up here, Joseph. I suspect you'll be anxious to get reacquainted with your family and some old friends. Barnabas laughs. Well played, Paul. I haven't been called Joseph for some time now. And yes, I do hope to catch up with my mom and dad and some old friendships. Moreover, I hope my family and friends will warm up to learning more about Jesus as Messiah. But they have been proven to be some tough characters. We'll see. Suddenly remembering, Paul asks, Are your mom and dad believers? Barnabas replies, Yeah, my mom has heard from both me and John Mark's mom, Mary. She's committed to following Jesus. Well, Kind of, anyway. And your dad? Paul asks. My dad? Hmm. I think he's receptive, but he's hesitant, Barnabas says. My family has been on Cyprus for some time now, and with our Levitical heritage, my gut tells me that my dad has wanted to do more kingdom-minded things. But he's far away from showing much interest in anything beyond his work at this point. I honestly don't know what goes on in that head of his, but I swear he's always thinking... Well, I love your heart for your family, my friend, Paul responds. I have a feeling that we're going to get a lot of practice at sharing while we're here. Overhearing them from behind, John Mark walks up to lean over the rail. So, what's the plan with all of that anyway? The plan? Paul asks. Yeah, where will we aim to begin sharing Jesus, John Mark asks. Well, the first places we'll wish to visit are the synagogues, Paul responds. This makes most sense simply because we have much in common with our Jewish friends who need to hear that the Chosen One of God has come just as our prophets had predicted. Many have been awaiting Jesus' coming for centuries, so it just makes sense to connect with them first. Isn't there a church here in Cyprus? John Mark asks. Leaning forward on the rail to see John Mark, Barnabas responds, Yes, though it is a small fellowship of believers at this time. Pointing over at Paul, Barnabas ribs, 
When this guy decided to make life difficult for us by ransacking the numerous churches in Jerusalem, a number of us scattered to different cities throughout the Roman world and beyond. Some of them came right here to Salamis. Scratching his shoulder, Barnabas continues, But here's how God works. There was a guy from here who went to Antioch to share the message that Jesus loves the Gentiles too. To everyone's surprise, a bunch of non-Jewish people believed and God showed up in a big way. It wasn't long before the church in Jerusalem got wind of this and sent me to Antioch to find out what happened. Feeling his arms get goosebumps, Barnabas goes on. Here's the craziest part. I arrived to see the power of God radiate among both Jews and non-Jews alike. So, I went to find this guy. He reaches over to grip Paul's shoulders. The same guy who killed and caused the believers to scatter out from Jerusalem in the first place. And this guy, I brought him over to help me teach them about Jesus. You know, the guy he hated so much. After arriving in Antioch, I quickly realized that I needed help. Paul wasn't far away from Antioch at the time, so I was able to recruit him to come back with me to teach this rapidly growing church. John Mark whistles at this. Mussing up John Mark's hair, Paul shrugs and says, You can't make this stuff up, you know. By the way, Barnabas, have you told your parents about me? Have you shared my story? Well, Barnabas hesitates. Yeah, I I know I have, but it's been some time since we talked. But they'll be fine. Paul looks over at Barnabas. Your reassurance is an overwhelming comfort. Just in case, John Mark, you can be my bodyguard. Oh, Joseph, the prodigal has returned home, Barnabas's mother cries out as she extends both arms to embrace her son. The two share an extended hug in an effort to make up for lost time. Holding him back at arm's length, she takes a deep breath and looks at her son. Why, you're nothing but skin and bones. Looking over at John, Mark, and Paul, she exclaims, Don't you feed this boy. Ma, Barnabas exclaims, I'm doing great. We just do a lot of walking. Well, Barnabas's mom exclaims, The only walking you'll be doing today is getting yourself home and eating for the next several days. Briefly glaring at Paul, she looks back at Barnabas and continues, This boy is in desperate need of food. With an accusatory tone, she sneers at Paul. What, do you hold back the food from him when it's mealtime? Do you store it under lock and key? Why haven't you cared for my boy? Rolling his eyes, Barnabas does his best to defend Paul. Ma, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He's a great guy who has helped me immeasurably. Setting her eyes now on Barnabas, his mom lays into him. And you, when's the last time you've written? I don't see you for over a decade and you don't write? The only news I hear is that you become a Jesus follower and now you're some important big shot in the church. Ma, it hasn't been a decade and you know I've written you on several occasions, Barnabas replies. The very fact that you know I'm a Jesus follower and that you follow him too is because I've talked with you in person. I've also written you and dad several times. Waving Barnabas off, she quickly takes a second look at John Mark. Wait, John Mark, is that you? Why, you're all grown up now. She reaches out to squeeze his cheek, which causes him to wince. How's your mother, my son? Oh, how I've missed her. She's fine, Auntie, John Mark says. Ma, Barnabas asks, where's Dad anyways? I thought he might have come with you to meet me. Fixing John Mark's garment, she then looks at Barnabas. Oh, you know your father. Once he begins a project, he doesn't quit until he's ready to stop. 
She then turns around and begins walking. John, Mark, and Paul, they smile at each other while Barnabas shakes his head and says, Well, I guess we're going now. Following the wide Roman colonnade, the four walk between the two rows of columns past the theater and out beyond the city. From the paved road, they take a smaller road that winds through a grove of oak trees. Fondly recollecting the trees, Barnabas says, I spent a lot of time in these trees as a kid. So climbable. Paul and John Mark crane their necks upward to see an endless cluster of oak branches sprawling in each direction. The journey along the paths opens a flood of childhood memories for Barnabas, who begins to lag behind. Taking a moment to stop, he spins around to relish his years spent here as a child. Taking a deep breath, he then picks up his pace to keep up with the others. As they pass the boundary stone, Barnabas points to an even narrower path along a smaller plot of land and says, We're home, guys. Let's walk this way. Following the path, the four encounter a small dwelling with a detachable building on the other side of the small path. Behind the dwellings rises a larger grove of mature olive trees. John, Mark, and Paul take in the impressive grove behind the modest buildings and whistle. Wow, Paul shares aloud. That's a big grove. Yeah, Barnabas replies. My parents are pretty well known for their olive oil and they farm from those trees. The press is in the other building, no doubt along with my dad, who's innovating yet another new way to season the oil. Both look at Barnabas. Creating a mixture of olive oil and spices that had been a passion of my dad's for as long as I can remember, Barnabas explains. It's what he does. Not saying a word, Barnabas's mom walks into the home and immediately gets to meal preparations. Walking up to John, Mark, and Paul, Barnabas asks, Hey guys, I'm going to take a moment before coming in. Would you mind seeing how you might be able to be of help to my mom? Paul and John Mark look at each other, they nod, and they make their way in the home. Heading across the path to the detached shed, Barnabas takes in the scene in front of him. Wow, nothing's changed here, has it? Slowly creaking the door open, Barnabas slips into the shed. With a number of presses in the center of the room, Barnabas peers along one wall to see an assortment of bottles and pitchers ready to be used at any time. Along another wall is a work area with a host of herbs and spices littered along the counter. Dad, it's me, Barnabas offers. Turning his head ever so slightly, Barnabas's dad acknowledges his presence. With his hands occupied, he waves his head for Barnabas to approach. What do you have today, Dad? Barnabas asks. This mixture is an infusion of oregano, parsley, hot pepper, rosemary, zested lemon, and cloves. The issue is always ratio, but I think I have it, Barnabas's dad replies. Dipping a small piece of barley bread into the mix, he hands it to Barnabas to sample. Well? Already hungry, Barnabas samples the bread and oil. Wow, Dad, this is really good. Oh man, it has quite a kick, too. His dad smiles. Where did you get the lemons, Barnabas asks. Do you grow them now? No, but they're easy enough to find, his dad responds. Turning to see his son, Barnabas's dad touches a small grain spot in Barnabas's hair. You've aged, son. Then looking behind Barnabas, he says, And I see no wife or grandchildren behind you. Pretty hard to build a legacy with no children, son. A smirk is followed by a smile, and Barnabas replies, Dad, you of all people understand my calling. You know that at this time in my life, I'm committed to a much bigger mission. I know that, son, his father responds. But kids can help you accomplish that mission, too. Someday, yeah, Barnabas says, but for now... I wouldn't dream of putting a wife or children through the rigors of what we're doing right now. It wouldn't be fair to anyone. So what are you doing here, son? Barnabas's dad asks. Your mother has been dreaming of this day, the day of your return. 
It's good to be home for the next little while, Barnabas says, though this is only for a short time, probably just for the next few weeks. We're here to visit first the synagogues here in Salamis and hopefully build into the small band of disciples in the area. That's a noble goal, son, his dad replies, though I wouldn't be surprised if those in the synagogue don't warm up to you, especially you. What do you mean, Barnabas asks. Setting aside his mixture, his father turns to face him. The message of a risen Messiah has fallen on some resistant ears, son. Our synagogues, collectively, have made the decision to keep followers at an arm's distance. They see Jesus' followers as a group whose aim is to dismantle the synagogue. Yes, that seems to be a popular sentiment throughout the East, Barnabas replies. While our goal is certainly not to be divisive, we cannot forsake the very fact that we have encountered the risen Messiah. Dad, you know John Mark is here, right? This gains his attention. What? Your cousin is here? Yeah, and he's all grown up, Dad, Barnabas says. You know he witnessed Jesus' arrest in the garden firsthand, right? You know he spent significant time with the risen Jesus along with Peter and the others together, right? He's helping Mom right now in the kitchen. You should come in and say hi. His dad nods. Dad, Barnabas shares, I know you and Mom have been on the fence about this for years, in part because you haven't experienced it for yourselves. But now that we're 12 years older, you'll notice that our fervor hasn't died. We've seen too much not to do anything. We've encountered the power of God over and over to just sit on our hands. You have to understand this, right? Seeing his dad consider a recurring conversation, Barnabas says, Hey dad, there's somebody else who came with us. I want you to meet him. Lifting his head with an inquisitive look, Barnabas's dad says, Oh, who is it? Wiping his hand off on a towel, Barnabas and his dad walk over to the home. Barnabas replies, Oh, he's just a guy who I think you would like to get to know. Opening the front door for his father, Barnabas walks in behind him. With the three making preparations in the smaller kitchen, Barnabas announces, Dad, Mom, I would like to introduce you to Paul. Paul turns around to introduce himself. Interrupting, Barnabas continues, You may have heard of Paul. His mother and father exchange a look of confusion and then look at Barnabas. We give, son. Knowing where this is headed, Paul shakes his head. You may know him as Saul, the Pharisee, Barnabas announces. In a moment of recognition, their eyes widen with fear and both exclaim, Oh my. We'll need to end here for now. Can you imagine being greeted by the man responsible for the deaths of numerous Christ followers, hearing that he now plays for your team? Neither could Barnabas' parents. Little doubt they slept lighter on the nights Paul stayed with them, even after learning of his conversion. Like many who have heard of Paul's encounter with Jesus, many Jewish Christ followers were a bit fearful of Paul. Only after hearing how he repeatedly risked his life by sharing Jesus as the promised chosen one of God, would they slowly begin to see his conversion as authentic. Paul's, or Saul, his conversion is a big deal. The guy who was deputized by the highest court in the land successfully killed some and scattered many of those who had first committed their lives to following Christ. For the many who were scattered, some fled to Cyprus and began new lives on the island. To be introduced to the man, who was the main henchman for the Sanhedrin, had to be a bit scary for Barnabas' parents, but over time they would come to admire Paul and his devotion to Christ. No doubt they quietly observed, watching to see if God was in him or not. 
What do you do with the conversion of Paul? What do you do when the guy who stopped at nothing to destroy the lives of so many has a sudden conversion experience and does a full 180? When obsessed with an agenda, our very nature as human beings is to carry out that agenda, even if it means that we may violate our own standards or ethics, provided we have any, to do so. But in this case, Paul had nothing to gain and everything to lose by changing teams. In an instant, Paul lost his position, his financial backing, and even his purpose in life. And in many cases, they even tried to kill him. Yet in retrospect, called his former life as dung in comparison to the riches found in knowing Christ. One thing is very clear. Paul had a dramatic conversion experience. It's exciting to see the hand of God in another's life, as a changed life is the very business God excels at. But what happens when we ignore what's in front of us? What happens when we encounter a changed life and yet treat such changes with skepticism or indifference? At those moments, don't we question the power of God at work? Following that line of thinking, if we question the work of God in others, isn't it likely that we don't see or care about how God is at work in our own lives? If we refuse to see Him work in the lives of others, isn't it reasonable to assume that we ourselves have grown stubborn towards the things of God? In the case of Paul, here is living proof that God is present and at work. Yet there were many who either responded to Paul out of hostility and or indifference. Why such a reaction? Well, we as human beings have something that drives us, that internal drive that forges in a personal agenda for our lives. Should we perceive a need not being met in our lives, then we tend to become frustrated and internally dissatisfied. So we create our personal agendas in an effort to overcome the dissatisfaction. But often our solutions can come up short and leave us longing for something else, ever skirting around the real need that should be addressed. Furthermore, should anyone or anything get in the way of our course to solve our dissatisfaction problem, we might consider that person or life circumstance as the enemy. And that is when things get challenging. For some who were Jewish, the spark challenged their preconceived belief that Jesus could not be the chosen one of God. So they became hostile when confronted by somebody like Paul. Not everybody was hostile, though. Some were just plain old indifferent. They might have concluded that Paul's message was strange or foreign, so they didn't find it relevant to them. They didn't care to listen any further. Either way, this brings us back to the question, what do you do with Paul's conversion? Do you fight against the idea that God suddenly and supernaturally showed up to change Paul's mind? No. Do you find it irrelevant to your life? If so, why bother? In either case, it is a lost opportunity to see how God specializes in filling our most basic of needs as human beings. So, I implore you to get your head re-examined, to re-examine this conversion, and begin to discover what changed Paul from the inside out. Identify what drove him and how his efforts at solving his underlying needs left him high and dry, that is, until God supernaturally intervened. Through the relating of Paul's story, you just may begin to see some parallels in your own life. Well, that's it for now. We'll see you next week.